The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. We're going to start a new series. I'm going to start a series on Christ in the Minor Prophets uh, this morning. Twelve Minor Prophets. I hope to take 12 weeks. That's one a week. So it'll be a little faster than what we normally do through books. For example, this uh, book this morning has 14 chapters. But what I really want to point out as we go through this is how all of these minor prophets, and I'll explain what that means in a second, all of these minor prophets foretold that there was going to be a Messiah who came. And that when he comes, he's going to restore everything that was lost in the garden. Everything that was promised to Israel in the promised land that they did not fully receive when they took over the land because of their idolatries and their sin and their rebellion. And so God sent them into captivity. And these minor prophets speak at a time in which either the northern kingdom, Israel, is in captivity or even later when Judah goes into captivity under Babylon and they're in captivity, these minor prophets then speak of God's judgment upon them for their sin, but also His promise of a Savior who's going to come, who's going to restore them, who's going to do what no king had ever done before. And the last three, of course, uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are written when Israel is back in the land. They're back um, from exile in Babylon. Some have come back from Assyria, but they still do not have the fulfilled promises. And so those last three, what are called post-exilic prophets, because they're after the exile to Babylon, God through them speaks of this Messiah who's to come, who's the Lord Jesus. And so we're going to spend the next six months, 12 weeks, of my preaching anyway, looking at these minor prophets. And the reason they were called the minor prophets is not because they're unimportant. It's not like there's the major prophets who are important and then the minor guys who are not so important. The reason they're minor is not the content. The reason they're minor is because they're short in length. If you look at the, what, what the Latin church fathers called the major prophets, You have, for example, Isaiah is 66 chapters, much longer. Whereas these minor prophets, all 12 of these books, these prophets could be contained in one scroll, one normal-sized scroll. Remember, they didn't have books back then, so they didn't have it bound like this. What they had was they had scrolls that they unrolled from one end to another. There would be two pieces of wood so that they could keep rolling it to see what portion of the the scriptures they were going to read, and all 12 of these minor prophets fit onto one scroll. So in fact, uh, the Latin church fathers called them the minor prophets, but before that, the Jewish people called them the book of the 12. And we, we know them from Hosea to Malachi in our Old Testament, the last 12 books of our English Old Testament. And I just want to start by, before I get into Hosea, I want to give you an overview of all 12 of these these minor prophets very, very quickly. Obviously, we can't go through them all. But in outline, if we broke them up into three parts, you have Hosea to Micah, which is basically all of these prophets give warning to Israel. 
warning to Judah, warning to the nations around them that God is opposed to sin. Both the covenant sin of the people of Israel because they were in covenant with their God as well as the cosmic sin of the nations around them. In fact, Jim Hamilton, one of my advisors on my Ph.D. committee, he wrote a book, God's Glory and Salvation Through Judgment. And we could title every single one of these books, God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment. That's how they speak of God is going to be glorified when he saves his people. And the way he saves them is he brings them through judgment. But Hosea to Micah is this warning. For example, Hosea, the book we're going to see this morning, warns that Israel's idolatry is a spiritual idolatry ultimately. It is like committing adultery. We're going to see this morning. Joel warns of a locust plague that's connected with the curses of the covenant that Yahweh made with Israel on the mountain in Exodus. Amos warns Israel to seek Yahweh, the roaring lion, and live. And you have this picture of the lion of the tribe of Judah, who's mentioned in Genesis all the way into Revelation. Obadiah, he actually denounces Edom, which comes from the, uh, they're the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother Esau, and he, he actually condemns them and warns them he's going to judge them for their violence against Israel. Jonah sees Nineveh repent in response to the proclamation of coming judgment. Nineveh, this is what's so ironic about the book of Jonah, is that Israel didn't listen to the warnings, even though they were God's people, and Nineveh who were a pagan city who had nothing to do with God, they listened to the warnings and they repented. And Jonah was mad about it because he didn't want them to repent. He wanted God to nuke them right off of the planet. And they were to be a sign to Israel that they should listen. If even the pagan nations repented when Yahweh warned, shouldn't they? And Micah says... Behold, the mountains melt when Yahweh treads on them to judge and save. Even the mountains are going to melt. So that's the the warning section. And then you get to Nahum, to Zephaniah, where judgment comes. This judgment over covenant and cosmic sin results in covenant and cosmic punishment. Nahum prophesies the fall of Nineveh. Even though Nineveh repented when Jonah preached, the repentance was short-lived. The next generation falls. Habakkuk, he actually cries out, God, why is it that the evil prosper and and the good don't? Why is it that your house is in ruins and everybody else's houses are beautiful? He questions Yahweh, but ultimately trusts him regarding the judgment that God is going to bring. Zephaniah proclaims that those who seek Yahweh, they'll be hidden on the day of his wrath. They'll actually be protected on the day of his wrath and delivered. And then guess what he's going to do? God is going to sing over them. He's actually going to rejoice over his people. And then you have the last three, which is this promise of covenant and cosmic restoration from Haggai to Malachi. Haggai calls the people to rebuild the temple, the place where God's glory was manifest among his people. Zechariah declares the temple is going to be rebuilt, but it's not going to be by might or by power, but it's going to be rebuilt by the Spirit of Yahweh, foreshadowing the new covenant 
and the coming of Christ. And Malachi assures Israel of Yahweh's love and points to the day when Elijah is going to prepare the way for Yahweh to be glorified in a decisive act of salvation through judgment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is the book of the Twelve. This is what's going on in them. And we're going to cover these rather quickly. Some we'll be able to get into in more detail. Obadiah has one chapter, so we can kind of go more verse by verse. But this morning, I want to look at... Actually, before I do that, I do want to quote uh, Jim Hamilton. Hopefully you can read this, but I'll, I'll read it for you. All the prophets indicted Israel on the basis of the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. In other words, they were held accountable to this covenant they made with Yahweh at the mountain. Because the covenant had been broken, the prophets called Israel to repentance. And when the people did not repent, the prophets declared that the covenant curses would fall. The people would be exiled from the land, just as Adam was exiled from Eden. But the prophets also announced hope for the future. The exile in return have a scriptural basis. Moses prophesied these very things in Deuteronomy. The judgment on Israel and Judah would be a purging judgment. And once Yahweh had purged his people, just as he had judged Egypt, he would judge their enemies. And just as Sinai had been shaken when the covenant was made, once more he would shake the heavens and the earth. And just as he had restored the people, uh, just as he had restored the people to the land of promise. I think I actually cut off a sentence. He's going to restore his people to the new heavens and the new earth forever. So here you have... God's glory and salvation through judgment. I want to mention finally a couple themes in these that you could kind of trace out over and over as we go through. First, Yahweh alone is His people's Savior. There are no other saviors. There are no other deliverers. Yahweh alone. Hosea 1.7 says, I will have mercy on the house of Judah. I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. Today we would say, I will not save them by the Navy fleet or the Air Force. I won't save them by any of the military might that we have. No drones, none of that. I'm going to save them by the Lord their God. Jonah 2.9 says, Jonah singing uh, when he's in the belly of the fish. You remember this? I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Micah 7, 7, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Zechariah 4, 6, then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This is how God saves. Yahweh alone is his people's savior. Another theme, his salvation will result in his glory filling the entire earth. This is why he's doing everything. It's so that he'll be glorified and we'll receive the joy. Habakkuk 2.14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's going to be accomplished. Haggai 2 Verse 7, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. He's talking about the temple. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. 
Zechariah 2.5, I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. And those, third theme, those Yahweh redeems, they're going to know him. Just one, this is everywhere, but just one verse, Joel 2.27, you will know that I'm in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. What a glorious promise. We will never be put to shame. And they will respond by worshiping him, rejoicing in him, and singing his praise. Zephaniah 3, verse 14, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. That's that's a lot of uh, energy in the singing. Shouting, rejoicing with all your heart. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. And you shall never again fear evil. Zechariah 9.9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is He. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is the king, the deliverer, the savior who's going to come that's been promised in all these prophets. The king is coming and he brings salvation with him. But then it says he's on a donkey. He's on the the foal of a donkey. Not even a donkey in its prime. He's on a new donkey. He's humble. He's lowly. Who is this? It's the Lord Jesus. This is fulfilled when he rides into Jerusalem one week before he's executed. And they shout, the crowds shout, and they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This one who'd been prepared, the the way had been prepared by Elijah the prophet who's to come, John the Baptist who prepares the way of, of the Messiah. And they see him for who he is, but then ultimately he's rejected and he's crucified. He was delivered up by the hands of lawless men. But according to Peter in the book of Acts, it was also the predetermined plan and purpose of God to crucify him so that we might be forgiven, so that salvation might come through Christ and we have forgiveness of sins, be declared righteous and holy and have a place in his kingdom. And so these are the major themes um, in the prophets, in in these minor prophets, the book of the Twelve. So let's turn to Hosea, an unfaithful wife and a faithful husband. That's a little bit uh, striking, isn't it? This book is divided up into two sections. The first three chapters, you have this a living parable, as it were, of Hosea and his wife Gomer, and we're going to read it. And in the chapters 4 through 14... This living parable of Hosea and Gomer is then prophesied by both Hosea and by God to say, ultimately, this unfaithful wife, Gomer, is a picture of you, Israel, the Lord says. And the faithful husband, Hosea, is a picture of me, Yahweh, the Lord says. Well, let's turn to Hosea 1, right after the book of Daniel. I'm going to begin by reading chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, 
king of Israel. And when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go and take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy. For I will have no, well, I no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Wow. What a picture. He tells his prophet, man of God, he says, you go and marry this woman. She's a woman of whoredom, it says, and have children with her. And it's going to be a picture to my people that this is exactly what they're doing with me. Though I have betrothed myself to them and married them, they play the harlot and they commit adulteries with all the gods around them and they worship at all the other idols and they've been unfaithful to me. Wow. And so this command, Hosea, he lived around the same time as Isaiah and Amos early in uh, the period of uh, Israel's exile before Judah is sent into exile. And Hosea's sad story is important. You would think that if you had, a mar- uh, you had married a, a, a woman who was incredibly immoral and you had the marriage collapse because of her infidelity, it would be enough to disqualify anyone from ministry. That Hosea wouldn't be qualified to be a prophet. But the opposite is true. Hosea offers up in this book his private tragedies in his family as his credentials for serving the living God. God says, I'm going to use your life as a picture of what it's like between me and my people. Hosea endures as a husband the same treatment God had endured as the covenant Lord of Israel. More than any other, Hosea has the right to speak in God's name. He had shared in God's experiences and therefore he can speak with God's heart. And what would be a true tragedy is if we get upset about Hosea and Gomer and wonder how could God do that and we don't get upset with God's relationship to his people and how his people can turn their back on him. We knew this people were not an incredibly worthy people. God had said this in Deuteronomy 9.6. He says, I didn't choose you because you were the greatest. I'm not giving you this land to possess because of your righteousness. In fact, you're a stubborn people. Remember he said, you remember when we went through the Pentateuch? You're a stiff-necked people. 
You are proud and stubborn and you go your own way. But the reason I'm giving you this land is because of my mercy and my grace. Because I chose you, because I set my affection upon you, and I loved you. And here you have Hosea being told to marry this woman. And we don't know all the details, and and there's been a lot of commentators that, that try to get God off the hook, as it were. Perhaps she wasn't immoral when he married her. She became immoral later, as the story tells. Because God surely wouldn't have Hosea marry an immoral woman, but that doesn't seem to be what the text says. Go, in verse 2, and take to yourself a wife of whoredom. Someone who makes her living at this. And so he does it. You see, the, 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 as much as it causes us to cringe at the thought of this, this is how God feels about His people when they turn their back on Him. Every apostasy, every immorality drives a wedge more deeply between God and His people when they sin and rebel. God knew they needed a Savior. They needed to be delivered not by the strength of horses and bows and chariots and horsemen. They needed to be delivered by the power of the Holy Spirit. So He promises there's coming a day. There's coming a day when there's a Savior who's going to come and He's actually going to make you fit to be in relationship with God. Because he's going to do a work that no one else has done. He's not only going to pay the penalty for all of your sin, he's going to give you his spirit so that you are made holy and righteous. And you're conformed into the image of God. And the image that was marred by the fall is being renewed in Christ by the power of the spirit. Then he says, Take, you're going to have children with her, children of whoredom. And I think in the context it means children who bear the disgrace of their mother's behavior. Children who bear the disgrace of their mother's behavior. And and what he does is he names them Jezreel, which means scattered. God was going to scatter Israel throughout the world because of their unfaithfulness. Lorahuma, meaning not love, the sin of the people has caused God to have no pity on them. He's not going to have any pity when they fall into judgment. They're going to reap what they sow. And lo ami, not my people. He says, they're not my people. But then he says, there's going to be a multitude you can't even count that are my people. They're going to be called children of the living God. In fact, Paul quotes this in Romans chapter 9, verses 25 and 26. He quotes two different verses in Hosea. He shows that the First, that the Gentiles are included in part of God's redemptive plan. So part of those that are not His people that are called the people of God are the Gentiles. And secondly, that a remnant of believing Jews will be preserved like the sands of the seashore. In fact, Paul says in Romans 9, God doesn't forget His promise to His people. That when the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, then He's going to deliver His people. The Israelites, the Jews... And so, when you read this in verse 9, when he says, Call my peop- name not my people, you are not my people, I am not your God. He's not casting them off forever. Because the very next verse he says, Yet the number of children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. Children of the living God. How is he going to do this? He's going to do this by sending his son. 
to be the savior of the world. God so loved the world, John 3, 16, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's how he's going to do it. They're going to be saved by the promises of God regarding his Messiah. And even before Jesus came, there was a remnant of faithful Jews who believed the promises of God regarding the Messiah. Just read Hebrews chapter 11. There was a number of them that believed what God had promised regarding this Messiah. They didn't know he was Jesus. He hadn't come yet. But they believed that God was going to send a Savior, a King, a Messiah, one who is a descendant of Eve in Genesis 3.15, a descendant of Abraham in Genesis 12, a descendant of Jacob, a descendant of David, 2 Samuel 7. This descendant who was going to come, who was the lion of the tribe of Judah, was going to be the one who was the king riding in on a donkey. And he saves them, not by might, not by power, but by his spirit. This is why Paul said, the cross of Christ, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, they look at the cross, they look at this message that God the Son, who became a man, fully God, fully man, died on a cross for my sins, that's foolishness. That's no Savior. And would you really believe that someone was raised from the dead? How could you believe that? That's foolishness. Paul said, the cross of Christ is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, this is true power. This is power that can save not just today from our trials, but save us forever from the wrath of God to come. This is the wisdom of God because only in God's wisdom could He come up with a plan that would cause us to be declared righteous for all of our sins to be cleared because He's holy and righteous and cannot sweep sin under the rug. He can't wink at it. He can't just simply say, oh, I'll let you in because you're a buddy of mine. There's no favorites with God. He has to judge sin. The book of Hosea tells us this. He's going to judge sin. But his promise of hope that we see in verse 11, the children of Judah, the children of Israel, shall be gathered together. They shall appoint for themselves one head as one leader. There's going to be one ruler, one leader. I think this is a reference to Jesus. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. This is when they're finally going to be saved and delivered is through Jesus Christ. So then he goes in chapter 2 to elaborate on this, what it means that they are not my people. Why are they not his people anymore? He says in verse 1, Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts lest I strip her naked and make her as the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they're children of whoredom for her mother has played the whore. She who has conceived them has acted shamefully for she said I will go after my lovers. 
who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband. For it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold which they had used for Baal. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with a ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. See, there you see, it's not just about Hosea and Gomer, though this is exactly what happened. Hosea's wife, Gomer, she left him. And she went to these other lovers and they gave her gifts and they gave her clothing and they gave her jewelry and they gave her food and wine and she thought this is the life. But she wasn't loved. So she said, I'll go back to my first husband. But her way was hedged up. Her way was in bondage. And now she's going to reap what she sows and God says, this is ultimately Israel about you and me. Because... Verse 13, you forgot me, declares the Lord. You forgot me. I'm the one who delivered you. I'm the one who saved you. I'm the one who made you what you are today, and you forgot me. Verse 14, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak ten- tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor's ador- Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on the day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. He says, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to bring you back. And when I deliver you, it's going to be a glorious deliverance. And you're going to be mine forever. And there won't be any more adulteries. There won't be any more allurement to other idols. In that day, verse 21 declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. It's the names of these children that were curses upon them now become reversed when God delivers. Well, when is he going to do this? He's going to do this, chapter 3 says, when he sends his Messiah. The Lord said to me, so after this prophecy, God speaks to Hosea again, go again, 
Love a woman who's loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. And so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a leketh of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days, and you shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so I, so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. And afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in to fear the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So the exile into Babylon, the exile into Assyria of the nation, it broke them of idolatry. When they returned to the land, no more did they worship other gods. They stopped worshiping the Baals. We know this in history. After Israel came back to the land of Israel, when Ezra and Nehemiah brought them back and rebuilt the wall in the temple, no more did they commit idolatries in the land. They worshiped Yahweh alone. And it's just what he said here. When you come back, there's going to be a season, a time that you're going to dwell, and you're not going to play the whore. You're not going to chase after other gods. And then he says, verse 4, they're going to dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household goods. And afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God. And then it says this, David their king. David was dead. Who is this? It's the one who was promised in 2 Samuel 7, the descendant of David who was going to sit on the throne and reign forever. So God says he's going to do this. And that, those first three chapters, this is the book of Hosea. This is the, the, the testimony of God to the people of Judah. And really, it's answering a question. Mark Dever, a pastor in, in Washington, D.C., he's got a book, Promises Made, where every chapter is a uh, book of the Old Testament. And it was a sermon series he went through. But the question he says is being answered in this book is, what is love? What is love? And contrary to how so many people think where love is emotions primarily, or it's um, a means to an end, or uh, like in the context of, of marriage, I'm going to love you as long as uh, I feel it feels good and you return the love. But if you stop loving me, well then... I don't need to love you anymore. So many people think it's that way, but this is true love. This is what we saw in 1 John. God is love, it says there. And he demonstrated his love by sending his son. We heard it in Romans 5, that the Spirit sheds abroad the love of God into our hearts. And what he does is he makes known to us the reality of what God's done. God loved us, and he demonstrates it in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For scarcely would someone dare to die for a righteous man. For a good man, someone might dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he justifies the ungodly. What a glorious thought. This is love. He loved us when we were at our worst. And this is what the book of Hosea pictures. Hosea, you go and marry that woman, Gomer. And you love her. And she's going to be unfaithful to you. 
And she's going to chase after other lovers. And she's going to become rich off of them. And you're going to be brokenhearted. And the first child we see is his because it says she has a child by him. But then we don't know about the second two. The language changes. Perhaps the other children are not even his. So when they're named not no mercy and not my people, they weren't even his. And then he tells him in chapter 3, you go and buy her off the auction block because she's been chasing after lovers and she's been sold into slavery and now she can't even deliver herself. And so you go and buy her off the slavery block and you love her again and you take her to be your wife again. And why did he say that? Because this is what he does with us. He is faithful. We sang about it this morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Oh God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with Thee. Thou changest not. He is faithful. And we are so unfaithful, aren't we? We're so quick to run after other idols, other saviors. What do I mean by that? We think that God can't deliver us from our problems today, so we need to run to other people who deliver us. I'm going to go to the wisdom of my counselor, I'm going to go to the wisdom of my friends. I'm going to go to the wisdom of the internet. I'm going, to, I'm going to just do it by my own strength. I'm just going to work harder. I'm going to do more. I'm going to be better. I'm going to deliver myself. And all we end up doing is putting ourselves right into slavery. And God's love, it is so faithful that he who set his affection upon us says, come back to me. Stop chasing after other Idols, stop committing adulteries with all the gods of this world that are no gods at all. Come back to me, the one who's loved you with an everlasting love. This is why Paul writes in Ephesians 3 that you would know how high and wide and deep and long the love of God is so that you'd be filled with all his fullness. If you could understand instinctually how great the love of God is for you, you would understand You would be secure in who you are. You would be secure in where you're at in your life. You would know that everything that's going on in your life has passed through the hands of the Father in heaven who loves you. And so you're not abandoned. You're not forsaken. He hasn't turned his back on you. He loves you. And he demonstrated he gave his son for you. That's why Paul in Romans 8 says, if he's not withheld his son, how will he not freely with him give you everything else? He's given you a spirit. What a picture. We see two things here. The danger of idolatry. Don't allow little infidelities to Christ to become great spiritual adulteries that bring the Father's discipline. And secondly, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you can know a love like this. You can know love like this. If you're without hope and without God, you can be brought near in Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who brings us near to the Father. Put your faith in Him. Believe in Him. Trust in Him. This is the living parable of Hosea and Gomer. And the rest of the book, chapters 4 to 14, is this repeated again and again, these warnings of accusation, but also promises of redemption. Chapters 4 to 7, there's accusations. 
Chapter 4, verse 1, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. The Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. That's his accusation, and then he unpacks it. There's no faithfulness to God, no love of God, and no knowledge of God. And then he says in verses 4 to 14, the leaders are guilty. And then from verse 15 of chapter 4 all the way down to chapter 7, verse 16, he says judgment is coming for their apostasy and their idolatry. Read chapter 5, verse 1. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. You've been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline them all. God's going to bring judgment. Chapter 6, verse 1. Even in the midst of this judgment, listen to these words. This is the love of God right here. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down, and He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up that we may live before Him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What a call to repent. This one who has torn you has done it so that you may heal, so that He may heal you. He struck you down so He will bind you up. Are you at a point in your life where you have nowhere left to turn? You feel like God is just hedging your way in and hounding you into where all of the paths are closed? He's doing it on purpose. He's getting your attention. He wants you to deal with Him. He says, come to Him. He's torn you so that He'll bind you up. So that He'll heal you. So that He'll raise you up. So that you would know the Lord. They did not know Him in chapter 5. Now He says, let us press on, verse 3, to know the Lord. This is at the heart of it. Chapter 7, verses 13 to 16. These people are too deep in their sin to repent. Woe to them, they've strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they've rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds for grain and wine. They gash themselves, they rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They're like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. He says, their repentance isn't genuine, and so they're going to reap what they sow. They return, but they don't return to me. They're crying out for the gods of grain and wine. And they rebel against me. They blame me for their misfortune. And so God in chapter 8 to chapter 14, text goes back and forth between Yahweh speaking and Hosea speaking. And he basically says in chapters 8 to 10, you have a false security and false prosperity. You have wealthy homes. You have military strength. Chapter 8, verse 14, Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. And Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities and devour her strongholds. They had forgotten God. They thought they had great security because they had big homes. And they had a large military. 
They had hypocritical worship. Chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. Sounds religious. His country improved. He improved his pillars, but their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. This hypocritical worship in the midst of their prosperity. So he appeals to them again to repent. Chapter 10, verse 12, Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up the fallow ground, for it's time to seek the Lord, that He may come and rain righteousness upon you. What an interesting picture. He says, you guys have all the vines, all the fruit, all of the produce you want. You have the rains coming upon you, but what you need is the rain of righteousness upon you. You don't need more food. Those you think your idols gave you. Seek the Lord. And so then judgment falls upon them. Chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. He says, just like the Exodus... I manifested my faithfulness and my love to them. I delivered them out of Egypt. When they were a child, I delivered them. I loved Israel, and I called them out of Egypt. In fact, what's interesting is Hosea is quoted by Matthew. Matthew quotes this verse to speak of Jesus when Jesus had to flee to Egypt because Herod was trying to kill him. And then he says this was to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And I think... The where Hosea was getting this from is not just ripping it out of context because God is speaking of the nation of Israel in the Exodus. But what he's saying is Jesus is the ideal Israel who was faithful in the wilderness temptation. Just like Israel went out of Egypt into the wilderness and was tempted for 40 years and failed and that generation died, Jesus was tempted 40 days in the wilderness. But unlike Israel, he was faithful. And he fulfilled all of the messianic expectations. So Matthew says that's who Hosea was ultimately speaking of. And the reason God is going to judge them according to chapter 13, verses 3 and 4. Verse 4, I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. She had gone after many other gods turned away from her one true husband, Yahweh, and like a devouring lion in verse 3, he's going to pounce on them and destroy them. And that, uh, the lion is not in verse 3, is it? That's the chaff and the dew. The lion is verse 7. I'll be like them, a lion, a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I'll fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. Wow. But then he closes the book. In chapter 14, with hope in this Messiah. Hope in this Messiah. He says, Return, O Israel, chapter 14, verse 1, to the Lord your God. You've stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord and say to him, Take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. And God says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger is turned from them. 
I'll be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. The ways of Yahweh are a guide to the righteous. And I think this last verse gives us, this isn't just falling in redemptive history as if, okay, this tells the story of how Jesus is going to come and deliver And so we don't have to worry about Hosea anymore. No, God says, I am still the same way. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Stop running to idols and saviors that you think will deliver you. Stop stop chasing after other gods, committing other adulteries. And the way we do it the most is we look in the mirror and say, yes, your majesty. We become God in our life. We decide we're the ones who are going to decide what we're going to do, when we're going to do it, and nobody's going to tell us what to do because you're not the boss of me. (laughs) But God says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. And that kingdom you're building, how's it working out? It's not. Your kingdom's a kingdom of sand. It's going to blow away. Return to me. You see, you and I are the unfaithful objects of God's ever-faithful love. If we're honest, we're the Gomer in this story. We're not Hosea. We're not the righteous man who was told to marry an unfaithful wife. We're the unfaithful wife who's been unfaithful to our righteous husband, God. Only when we understand this do we begin to understand what love is. I just want to close. 1 John 4 I know I just preached on this not that long ago, but 1 John 4, verse 9. If you want to turn there so we could read this together. I want to start in verse 7, actually. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. By the way, National Geographic shows and the History Channel will try to, you know, they, they get these guys, these liberal religious scholars who say that the God of the Old Testament was a God of anger and vengeance and judgment, and the God of the New Testament is a God of love, and so the Bible's not really the Word of God. That's not true. We see in the book of Hosea that the Old Testament God is a God of unfailing love to unfaithful people. He's the same one. This one John's writing about in the New Testament is the same God Hosea experienced in the Old Testament. God is love. Verse 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us. God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us. And He sent His Son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Wow. I think that's pretty practical. The realization that God has loved us should cause a response in us today. Today. 
We ought to love him and we ought to love one another. It's not complicated. The Christian life is not really very complicated, is it? Not necessarily easy, but it's not complicated. God is love. Father, thank you for your unfailing love. At the right time, at the the high point of the ages, you demonstrated your greatest manifestation of love by sending your Son to be our Savior. And this is why we gather around the table and why we celebrate this cup and bread is because of your love. By taking this cup which represents Christ's blood and this bread which represents Christ's body, we're remembering, we're reminding ourselves of how much you love us. You loved us so much you gave a son to die for us so that we might become children of God. And as long as we do this, we proclaim his death and his burial and his resurrection until he comes again. And so I pray this morning as we take this together that you would remind my brothers and sisters of how much you love them. They may come broken. They may come repentant and feeling unworthy because of their sin. But in Christ we have a reminder that sin is conquered and sin is broken. That we're forgiven. We have a reminder that you have loved us. And so would you remind them of that this morning? Fill them with your love. May your spirit do his work of shedding your love abroad in their hearts. As we sing now, may we respond in love. Sing praises to you out of love for who you are and what you've done in Christ. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.